Well, howdy y'all. Welcome back to Once Upon a Time in Texas with episode number 56 coming at you. I am your host, Michael Mitchell. A um, couple of random things just going on with the family. Um, the Red River Regional Science and Engineering Fair just happened this last Friday at Midwestern State University. My wife is the president of that now um, 501c3 organization. Um, we used to have a regional science fair here years ago, like 15, 10, 15 years ago. Um, it kind of went by the wayside and now it has started back up again. So, uh, my wife and some other science nerds here in town, um, which I was one of them for a bit and I still help with it. But, uh, anyway, about three years ago, they started it back up. It was an unjuried one and, and they had a few projects. Um, and then the next year's goal was to make it a juried science fair. So these young people could go compete in state and at, uh, international, which they did. And so the kids were super excited cause you know, we're from Wichita falls and, uh, the international science fair was in Dallas, Texas, <laughs> two hours away. And so uh, they didn't even have to leave the state, you know, to go to the National Science Fair or International Science Fair. And so uh, anyway, um, so then this last year, they've been working to make it a full-on 501c3 charitable organization, which they did. They've done some fundraising. And, uh, of course, the number of projects doubled again. And it was great, and uh, we've got a fantastic team of young people. It's actually some of my wife's former students that are going to L.A. to the uh, National or International Science Fair. Um, just solid gold thing. They're still trying to raise money to get these folks there, but uh, it was a great thing. I think their project was on pancreatic uh, cancer, something like that, uh, which is a big deal, like, these are high school students, guys, so it's it's pretty cool. Uh, in other news, my oldest daughter, Lorelai, um, got called out for vigil in the Order of the Arrow, which is the Honored Camper Society of the Boy Scouts of America. Um, it's a big deal. We only had three in our entire council this year that got called out for that, so... Um, we are going to be, well, we, she is going to be going through her, uh, vigil ceremony and overnight there's, there's lots of ceremony and pomp and circumstance to a lot of the things in the order of the arrow, but, uh, you know, and the boy scouts as a whole, but she's going to be doing that pretty soon. Um, yeah, just got some great things cooking. I've got some loans cooking. You guys know that I'm a mortgage zone originator, so starting to get the word out there a little more about what I do and saving people money. And I'm just very blessed right now to be working with some, some really cool clients. Um, got four or five of them that I'm working on right now. So it's very cool. So on to the podcast. So this month, as you guys know, from last week is Black History Month. It's February. So this is part two. And we're going to take a look at some famous... African Americans or blacks, whatever is preferred, from Texas and uh, their contribution in our society. Before we take a look at some of these famous folks, 
from Texas. I would like to thank our sponsors, me and Victory Home Loans. As I've told you guys before, uh, I'm sure you all know tons of people moving, uh, not just in Texas and Oklahoma where I'm licensed, but the uh, our company, Victory Home Loans, covers 15 total states, including Texas and Oklahoma. And we're adding more by the end of the year. So if you know someone moving in the United States, man, just tell them to give me a holler. If I'm not licensed in their state, um, or if Victory Home Loans isn't licensed their state, we can get them hooked up through our broker network because we know lots of people and we love plugging you in with the right people. So we help people win by getting them into their dream homes and, and getting that American dream of home ownership. And uh, yeah, we want to make it happen for you and anybody you know that's moving. So why not work with somebody, you know, like me? that's at least a little entertaining and works hard to make that process faster, cheaper, and easier. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Send them over to themichaelmitchell.com. That is T-H-E, michaelmitchell.com. Let me help them out. Remember, when you work with me, I sell dreams, not mortgages. Isn't that nice? <laughs> Now, it's pretty cool. Uh, a, a recent couple I'm working with are uh, some veterans, and their lease um, where they've been renting for a while isn't up for a few more months, but I said, let's go ahead and get y'all pre-approved and start working on your stuff. And, uh, you know, then, then you can go to work with the realtor and just start looking at houses, kind of dip your toe in that water. And, man, it wasn't like five days, and they fell in love with the house and they're in contract and now we're working on it. So we move pretty quick. It was good stuff. So yeah, would love to help y'all out. TheMichaelMitchell.com. So where did this ideas uh, or this week's idea come from? Well, it came from last week and it came from our good family friend, Herb Griffin. And uh, I forget what Herb is doing now. It's still, he's retired from the Navy from the military. He was um, the big cheese chaplain, is my understanding, at Walter Reed. And now he's uh, something with the United Methodist Church, but it still has to do with the armed forces. It's it's not like the chief inspector, but it, it's something that sounds like that. Herb, if you listen to this podcast or, or any of Herb's family, Elena, if y'all listen to this, so sorry, I don't remember his title and he forgot to send me his bio for this week. So, um, but anyway, basically uh, what he does is he not investigates, but he, he checks out the chaplain services, or at least that's my understanding, for the military. And I, I guess and think he's the guy that makes the recommendations on who goes where and what services to offer and, and basically how to help our soldiers, um, both in country and overseas. And so, you know, it's just, it's a really cool position. Um, super glad that he's got it. And I can't think of a better guy to do it. And so anyway, the idea kind of came from him. He shot me some information, um, early last week, uh, about, uh, Girl Scouts, which I'm not involved with Girl Scouts, but scouting just as a whole i'm involved in boy scouts but scouting as a whole has been great and sent me some stuff on the uh 
the an African American lady that started the first Black Girl Scout troop in Georgia. And it was interesting, and then it hit me it was Black History Month, and I, you know, like I said, went down that rabbit hole on, uh, you know, famous Black or African Americans from Texas. And so we talked a little bit about that last week and kind of some events and things like that, and the first Black person known to have been in Texas. And uh, so this week we're going to focus a little bit on some famous black or African-American folks that were either born in Texas or made an impact here. But first, I'm going to share another story about Herb and uh, and just what a cool guy he is. And so Herb and his, his wife, um, then I think girlfriend or fiance, were up visiting my family when we lived in a little town called Hominy, Oklahoma. And uh, my parents are going to hate the fact that I'm telling this story, but I don't care. It's my podcast. And I'm sure mom will gripe at me later. But uh, anyway, um, so they were up visiting us and we'd gone over uh, to the next town over named Cleveland. And I think we we're going to have dinner or whatever. And, uh, and let me back up. Now, I'll keep going forward. So in front of us walks a guy with leather pants on which it was the 80s and it was whatever that leather pleather you know all the rock stars were wearing stuff like that and it had just been a week or two before that i had seen somebody wearing leather pants um i think it was in like sky oklahoma we were on our way to tulsa or something anyway and i pointed it out and i'd seen all the rock stars wearing pants like that and um, I told my dad, I said, oh, those pants are so cool. And, you know, I want to have a pair. And, of course, dad being the loving, caring, thoughtful father that he is looked at me. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something like only weirdos wear leather pants like that or whatever. <laughs> and so, anyway, that that stuck in my mind. I'm pretty sure he said weirdos. Um, I don't remember exactly what the wording was, but, you know, uh, good supportive stuff. And you got to remember, I was like, I don't know, seven. And so seven, eight years old. And so that kind of stuck in my mind. And so here we are a week or two later, and uh, Herb and Elania, who are African-American, are in the car with us. Um, We've got my father and my mother and my sister sitting in the front seat. And me, Herb, and Elania are in the back seat, and I'm sitting in the middle. And here comes this guy walking by. And I don't remember if it was leather pants or if it was like the shiny leggings that the rock stars were all wearing. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, I pointed out and I said, oh, dad, there's a guy wearing those those pants. And he was like, mm-hmm. And I said, and do you remember what you said about people that wear those kind of pants? Obviously what he had blurted out had not made as big an impression on him as it did on me. Um, But this is where the story goes a little sideways, right? So I had lots of friends um, at that time, you know, Uh, maybe I was a little older, eight, nine years old. It was like third grade. And, And I had learned a new colorful word from some friends and, and it was, it was, uh, we'll get to it here in a second. But this, this new colorful word had been tossed around a lot in school. And 
I knew that the word probably wasn't good to use, but I wasn't sure. No teachers had caught us yet, so, you know, to kind of correct us on our stupidity. And Dad says, what? What? And I said, you know what you said about people who wear those kind of pants? And he, he said, what? And I said, well, you know, there. And then I blurted out the N-word. <laughs> okay, I'm sure some of y'all may not be laughing. So anyway, I blurt this out. And um, much like when um, the kid Ralphie in the Christmas story blurts out the, the F-word, but he says fudge, and like he's grounded and everything, my dad blows a gasket. Starts to lose his mind, starts flailing his arms. I'm trying to figure out what I've done. And, you know, and here are our African-American friends who I've just said the N-word in front of, not knowing what I was saying. And I had attributed it 100% wholeheartedly to my father. (laughs) My father was um, doing his best to not only shut me up, but also kill me um, at that time. And he didn't care that it was in front of our friends and the entire family, but he was going to kill me right then and right there in the car. And all I can say is, um, thank God my little sister was in the way, in the middle, and he couldn't reach around to smack me into next week uh, and pound me into an oblivion. And I remember... Herb starts saying, Doc, Doc, calm down, Doc. Like, hey, I'll let me talk to him. Let me talk to the boy. I don't think he knows what he's saying. And I'm like, obviously I don't. (laughs) And so Herb was the great savior of the day because um, he was able to kind of, you know, empathetically shove my my parents and little sister out of the car and he and I were able to have a conversation in the back seat where I will admit was exceptionally tough to pay attention because my dad was pacing back and forth in front of the car um, like a caged tiger waiting to pounce on its prey And so I'm doing my best to listen to Herb and understand that what I'd said was wrong and what a derogatory word the N-word was. However, all I could think was, you know, my untimely demise that was going to be happening very soon. And so anyway, Herb was super cool about it, explained it to me. And and to this day, I don't use the word. I correct others when they do. And uh, anyway, but I'll never forget the look on my father's face you know, pacing back and forth and back and forth, ready to kill me, uh, his his only beloved son, and the stupidity that came out of my mouth that day. And so, uh, anyway, got back to school and was able to correct my friends on the nastiness of the word. And, uh, yeah, life moves on. I didn't die. I think I still walk with a little bit of a limp, thanks to that day. <laughs> Not really, I love my dad, but he was just horrified that I attributed to him. So that's kind of a uh, a funny story because if you have young kids, you understand the crap they pick up. And we're very proud of the crap that we pick up, and we want to share it with the universe. 
And that was terrible timing, which I'm known to have. Anyway, there will be no N-words used in my podcast. Um, thanks to that day, and, and thanks to Herb for explaining the uh, derogatory effects of it. So we're going to talk about a few famous black or African Americans from Texas. So a quick Google search and a ton of information from Wikipedia was all I really needed to dive into these folks. And while we have a ton of folks that are notable, these are a few that caught my eye. So here we go. First off, we have Barbara Charlene Jordan. And uh, she was a American lawyer, educator, and politician. She was a Democrat, which is fine. She was the uh, first African-American elected to the Texas Senate after Reconstruction, the first Southern African-American woman elected to the United States House of Representatives, and one of the first two African-Americans elected to the U.S. House from the former Confederacy since 1901, alongside a guy named Andrew Young from Georgia. Um, Jordan achieved notoriety for delivering a powerful opening statement at the House Judiciary Committee hearings during the impeachment process against Richard Nixon. And in 1976, she became the first African-American and the first woman to deliver a keynote address at a Democratic National Convention. She received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, among numerous other honors. She was the first African-American woman to be buried in the Texas State Cemetery and is known for her work as chair of the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform. I forgot to write down where she was born, but it was here in Texas. I did better on everybody else. The next one is also... a new, Oh, and I'm sorry. She was around from 1936 to 1996. So, long life. So the next one was a guy named Charles Edward Mean Joe Green from Temple, Texas. So, he was better known as Mean Joe, and some of you guys might know him, but he was an American former football defensive tackle who played for the Pittsburgh Steelers of the NFL from 1969 to 1981. He is a recipient of two NFL Defensive Player of the Year awards, five first-team All-Pro selections, and ten Pro Bowl appearances. Green is widely considered to be one of the greatest defensive linemen to play in the NFL. He was noted for his leadership, fierce competitiveness, and intimidating style of play, for which he earned his nickname, Mean Joe. He was born and raised in Temple, Texas. He attended North Texas State University, now the University of North Texas, where he earned Consensus All-America honors as a senior playing for the North Texas State Eagles football team. He was selected by the Steelers fourth overall in the 1969 NFL Draft and made an immediate impact with the team as he was named the NFL's Defensive Rookie of the Year. Green is credited with providing the foundation upon which Steelers coach Chuck Knoll turned the dismal franchise into a sports dynasty. He was the centerpiece of the Steel Curtain defense that led Pittsburgh to four Super Bowl championships in a six-year span. 
Throughout his career, Green was one of the most dominant defensive players in the NFL, able to overpower opposing offensive linemen with ease and disrupt blocking. Former teammate Andy Russell called Green unquestionably the NFL's best player in the 70s. He is a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame and the College Football Hall of Fame, and his number 75 jersey is one of only three that have been retired by the Pittsburgh Steelers. Green is also well-known, and this is what I remember, for his appearance in the Hey Kid Catch, the Coca-Cola commercial which aired during the Super Bowl and solidified his reputation as a tough football player who's also a nice guy. I do remember seeing that commercial uh, replayed many times when I was a kid. Number three is Doris Dory Miller from Waco, Texas. Dory Miller, um, who lived from 1919 to 1943, was an American naval cook who was the first black recipient of the Navy Cross and a nominee for the Medal of Honor. As a mess attendant second class in the United States Navy, Miller helped carry wounded soldiers to safety during the attack on Pearl Harbor. He then manned an anti-aircraft gun and despite no prior training in gunnery, officially shot down one plane. But Dory and other eyewitnesses claimed the ranges of four to six planes were shot down. Miller received the Navy Cross from Admiral Chester Nimitz on May 27, 1942, but many sailors and naval officers believed that Miller's heroism deserved a Medal of Honor. Miller was nominated for the Medal of Honor by a congressman from Michigan and a senator from New York, and the black press enthusiastically campaigned for Miller to receive this decoration. However, Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox at the time, who opposed black sailors serving in the United States in any combat role, recommended against Miller receiving the Medal of Honor. Indeed, not a single black sailor, soldier, or Marine was awarded the Medal of Honor between 1941 and 1945, which is really sad. And in 1996, Vernon J. Baker was the only black veteran of World War II to be awarded this decoration while still alive. In June 1943, Miller was promoted to Cook Petty Officer, third class, in November 1943, Miller was killed in action when his ship, the escort carrier Liscombe Bay, was torpedoed by a Japanese submarine during the Battle of Macon in the Gilbert Islands. The destroyer escort Knox-class frigate USS Miller, reclassified as a frigate in June 1975 and in service from 73 to 1991, was named after him. On January 19, 2020, the Navy announced that a Gerald R. Ford-class nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, numbered CVN-81, would be named after Miller. The ship is scheduled to be laid down in 2026 and launched in 2029. And if you've seen the movie Pearl Harbor, um, Cuba Gooding Jr. plays a cook, and that's what it was based off of, was Miller. So, very cool history. Number four, Bessie Coleman from Atlanta. That is Atlanta, Texas. She was an early American civil aviator. She was the first African-American woman to hold a pilot's license. She earned her license from the 
Federation Aeronautique Internationale on June 15, 1921, and is the earliest known black person to earn an international pilot's license. She was born to a family of sharecroppers in Texas. Coleman worked in the cotton fields at a young age while also studying in a small segregated school. She attended one term of college at Langston University, which is just south of Oklahoma State University. I assume that's the same Langston. Coleman developed an early interest in flying, but African Americans, Native Americans, and of course women had no flight training opportunities in the United States. So she saved and obtained sponsorship in Chicago to go to France for flight school. She then became a high-profile pilot in notoriously dangerous air shows in the United States. She was popular known as, or popularly known as Queen Bess and Brave Bessie and hoped to start a school for African-American flyers. She died in a plane crash in 1926, but her pioneering role was an inspiration to early pilots and to the African-American and Native American communities. I had not heard of her before. That's pretty cool stuff. I've got quite a few friends that are pilots here. Jumping on to number five, Scott Joplin from Texarkana, Texas. Uh, he lived from 1868 to 1917 and was an American composer and pianist. He was dubbed the King of Ragtime. He composed more than 40 ragtime pieces, one ragtime ballet, and two ragtime operas. One of his first and most popular pieces, the Maple Leaf Rag, became the genre's first and most influential hit later being recognized as the quintessential rag music. Joplin considered ragtime to be a form of classical music meant to be played in concert halls and largely disdained the performance of ragtime as honky-tonk music, most common in saloons. Joplin grew up in a musical family of railway laborers in Texarkana, um... And he lived on the Arkansas side, which, yeah, part of Texarkana is in Arkansas. Developing his own musical knowledge with the help of local teachers. While in Texarkana, he formed a vocal quartet and taught mandolin and guitar. During the late 1880s, he left his job as a railroad laborer and traveled the American South as an itinerant musician. He went to Chicago for the World's Fair in 1893 which helped make ragtime a national craze by 1897. However, I didn't get into it too much for the podcast, but his life was full of struggles. Lots of his music was stolen and is still considered missing, which is unfortunate. However, some of it was found in the last 10 years, I believe. And uh, yeah, he's, he's getting credit where credit is due now. <clears throat> Number six, <clears throat> Jack Johnson, Galveston, Texas. Full name was Jack Arthur Johnson, lived from 1878 to 1946. Um, he was nicknamed the Galveston Giant and was an American boxer who, at the height of the Jim Crow era, became the first black world heavyweight boxing champion from 1908 to 1915. His 1910 fight against James J. Jeffries was dubbed the fight of the century. 
Johnson defeated Jeffries, who was a white guy, triggering dozens of race riots across the U.S. And according to filmmaker Ken Burns, for more than 13 years, Jack Johnson was the most famous and the most notorious African-American on earth. He is widely regarded as one of the most influential boxers in history, and then transcending boxing, he became part of the culture and history of racism in the United States. So in 1912, Johnson opened a successful and luxurious black and tan, which was a desegregated restaurant and nightclub, which in part was run by his wife, who was scandalously a white woman. Major newspapers at the time soon claimed that Johnson was attacked by the government only after he became famous as a black man married to a white woman and was linked to other white women. Johnson was arrested on charges of violating the Mann Act, uh, which forbode or forbade one to transport a woman across straight lines for immoral purposes. It's considered a racially motivated charge that embroiled him in controversy for his relationships, including marriages. He was sentenced to a year in prison, but he fled the country and fought boxing matches abroad for seven years until 1920 when he came back to the U.S. and served his sentence at the Federal Penitentiary in Leavenworth. John con Johnson continued taking paying prize fights for many years and operated several other businesses, including lucrative endorsement deals. He unfortunately died a little young in a car crash in 1946 at the age of 68. He's buried in the Graceland Cemetery in Chicago. In 2018, Johnson, with some instigation from actor Sylvester Stallone, was formally pardoned of all of his charges by then-U.S. President Donald Trump. Number seven, Mary Elizabeth Branch. She was from Virginia, but hang on, hear me out. She was an educator who served as president of Tillotson College. She helped it grow and develop um, and was an influential leader. So Branch was born in 1881 in Farmville, Virginia to former enslaved parents Taswell Branch and Harriet Branch. Her father served two terms in the Virginia House of Delegates. Both her parents were literate and taught Mary at home, although she also attended school. After high school, she earned her teaching degree at Virginia State University and taught at an elementary school in Blackstone, Virginia. Blanche returned to Virginia State College to teach. She stayed there for 20 years and at the same time earned uh, her BA and then an MA, so master's, from the University of Chicago. After Virginia State College, Branch became the dean of Vashton High School in St. Louis. After that, she became the president at Tillotson College in Austin, Texas, where she stayed until her retirement. The college had seen enrollment decline, and the year before Branch's arrival, it had actually been demoted to a junior college for women. Branch had new buildings built and existing ones renovated. The library was enlarged. And so was the number of teachers. With a successful recruitment strategy aided by her ability to raise funds, she managed to grow the enrollment from less than 150 students in 1930 to over 500. And she also strengthened ties with the community. 
After five years, Tillotson became a co-ed four-year college and joined the American Association of Colleges. Branch was the first and only African-American female president of an institution in this association. In 1944, she assisted in establishing the United Negro College Fund, or UNCF, and served as president of the Austin chapter. She died in 1944 in Baltimore, Maryland, and she was a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha, or AKA. So, pretty interesting lady, although not born here, had a big impact in Austin, Texas, for sure. Number eight, Matthew Gaines. He was born in Louisiana, but hang on again. Matthew Gaines was born in 1840 near Alexandria, Louisiana, to a female slave owned by the Martin Despalier family. Gaines taught himself to read from a white boy who smuggled in books. This boy, they suspect, was the young Blas Philippe um, Despalier, or Pallier, I'm not sure how you say that, who lived on the estate and later became the sole heir of um, Alamo hero Charles Despellier, his uncle. After being sold from the Despellier family, Gaines escaped from his new owner in Louisiana to Arkansas and eventually made it to New Orleans, where he was captured and returned. In 1859, Gaines was sold to Christopher Columbus Hearn, where he remained until 1863 when he tried to flee to Mexico. He was caught again and forced to work as a runaway slave in Fredericksburg, Texas, until the end of the Civil War. After the Emancipation Proclamation was officially announced in Texas in 1865, Gaines settled in Burton, Texas, which is in Washington County, where he established himself as a leader of the freedmen, both as a Baptist preacher and a politician. In 1869, Gaines was elected as a senator of Texas's 16th district in the 12th Texas legislature. Guys, this is 1869. He became a Texas state senator. He gained a reputation for being a guardian of the newly won rights of the African Texans, and throughout his term, he addressed the issues of public education, prison reform, the protection of black voters, and tenant farming uh, reformation. Gaines actively supported the forward movement that established the first public school system for all Texans and assisted in allowing Texas to take advantage of the Federal Grant College Act, also known as the Murrill Act. In In 1870s, Gaines played a strategic role in passing the Militia Bill, which created a state police force to combat lawlessness and to protect against voter intimidation, which was a big deal. In a politically motivated trial, he was convicted of bigamy in 1873. Despite the charge being overturned on appeal, his seat was challenged by a guy named Seth Shepard, and he was removed from office on the grounds of being a convicted felon. In 1875, he was arrested for making a civil rights speech in Giddings, Texas. He told his audience that, quote, in the eyes of God, blacks are as good as whites. They should have pride and hold their heads up even in troubled times, 
end quote. Gaines continued to be, an act in, to be active in politics and made his political views known in conventions, public gatherings, and, of course, from his pulpit. He continued to be an activist until his passing in 1900 in Giddings, Texas. Although there are definitely sad parts, it appears that he lived quite the life. So there you have it. Eight notable African Americans that were either born or made a difference in Texas. There's no doubt that there are tons more um, that I could talk about here, but these are the ones that stuck out to me in my research. So I grabbed them. So what do y'all think? Let me know what other interesting or weird or off-the-wall Texas history you'd like to hear about. I would like to thank our sponsors one more time, which is me, Victory Home Loans. If you know someone moving anywhere in the U.S., send them my way. TheMichaelMitchell.com, T-H-E, MichaelMitchell.com. If I do not serve the state, I will push them to one of my teammates with Victory Home Loans. If we don't serve that state, we will work through our broker network and hook them up with somebody that we do know. Remember, I sell dreams, not mortgages at themichaelmitchell.com. I love making people laugh and smile, and I love helping people get that American dream of home ownership. Thank you all so much for tuning in to Once Upon a Time in Texas. As always, remember, the stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas, y'all have a fantastic week.